Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to examine the life and work of the great 18th century scientist and mystic, Emanuel Swedenborg. With me is Gary Lachman. Gary is an independent scholar and author of over 20 books on the great esoteric thinkers, including people like Madame Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, the Hermetic tradition, Swedenborg, of course, Alistair Crowley, and many, many others. Uh, the interview is being conducted once again via the internet as Gary is an American living in London. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gary, and uh, Happy New Year. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. This is our fifth interview. Yes, it's uh, we're going through them. Uh, <laughs> well, Happy New Year to you as well. And uh, as always, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks. So Swedenborg uh, is one of the most fascinating characters in human history. Well, all the people you write about strike me as among the most fascinating characters. I think to begin with, to understand his life, we have to appreciate he was born well over 300 years ago in a, in a very different uh, social environment than we experience today. Uh, yes, Manuel Swedenborg. Um, he was born uh, 1688 in um, Stockholm. And um, um, yes, it was a very, very different world than when we live in today. It was a world, for one thing, which took the Bible very seriously. And the Bible was something that Swedenborg uh, took very seriously. Um, and he was brought up with it. His father um, w was a pastor and uh, actually was quite the uh, kind of stickler. Uh, to the religious uh, rules and teachings and all that, and was was rather sort of oppressive about it. And Swedenborg grew up in that, but he also grew up with a great love of science. And this was a time when it was the Enlightenment period. Um, he was aware of developments and uh, the new sciences that were coming up. And uh, he was a remarkably uh, precocious, uh, brilliant um, young uh, young man. And uh, from an early age, he sold, he showed uh, this incredible uh, facility uh, for sort of um, mechanical thinking. Um, he was kind of an inventor. Uh, although he didn't actually make many of the things, they kind of stayed on the drawing board, but he had plans for them, much in the same way that Leonardo da Vinci uh, had. And, um, and some of the things I've written about him and in other places people have referred to him as kind of the Scandinavian da Vinci and in that sort of uh, way. But uh, um, he um, was able to combine uh, this kind of... Um, life growing up in in a, in a very deeply religious sort of background uh with this uh rising interest in in the science and this was something that he uh made a life of although it was a life of two parts uh we can say uh the first part devoted to the pursuit of, of science and the second one devoted to uh pursuit of, of religion or spirituality but in his own unique way I think it's also uh, important to acknowledge that the uh, family achieved a, a, a title of nobility and he became a member of the Swedish parliament as a result of that. So he was engaged in politics. He was engaged in science.
science and engineering. Uh, he uh, was deeply uh, devout in his own way. And uh, because he uh, was born into wealth, he had the ability to travel all over Europe. And I suppose it's fair to say that, that he was, uh, for a person of his era in the 18th century, uh, would have been considered quite cosmopolitan. Oh, certainly. No, he was uh, he was a great traveler. Um, yes, his family uh, were nobled in uh, 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 exactly, I think, 1719 or something like that. And this is when I went from Swedenborg to Swedenborg, and that was sort of marked uh, uh, this this uh, nobility that they achieved. Uh, but uh, yeah, his father was a bishop. Uh, his mother um, was the daughter of one of the great uh, mine owners of Sweden. And one of the things Swedenborg did in, in a life, as you say, that was full of so many things that it's embarrassing to us to see uh, the number of things that he was able to do in one lifetime. Uh, he was an assessor of mines, of Swedish mines. So to get the idea, I mean, people, if they know about Swedenborg at the top of their heads, they sort of know about him from histories of the occult or histories of the paranormal or spiritualism or things of that sort. And this is the second second half of his life, um, more or less, when um, he started to write accounts of uh, visitations by angels and being taken on journeys to heaven and hell. But if you only knew that or knew about the sort of psychic experiences that um, he recounted, uh, you might have the idea of, oh, he's one of these mystic uh, kind of characters. But no, he had both feet very firmly on the ground and underground as well, as I was saying, where he was an assessor of mine. So this was a very responsible, um, you know, uh, 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 important, serious occupation for, for him. And also, he was on the Swedish diet. Um, he had to go, you know, to the Senate and vote on a variety of different issues. He was involved with uh, problems of currency, a variety of different things of this sort. At the same time, that he was writing enormous uh, volumes on anatomy and the brain, uh, and also uh, astronomy and a variety of other things. So yes, he was an incredibly uh, uh, accomplished and powerfully creative individual. Uh, as I say, he's one of these titans from, from that period. And um, we don't know of that so much. I mean, people from the 19th century, like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, or you mentioned the uh, transcendentalist earlier, uh, he, um, who is you know, founder of the transcendentalists in, in America, uh, he, he wrote of Swedenborg uh, that he was one of the mastodons of literature, meaning not so much he was old that he was this giant he was this tremendous force but uh yeah he he doesn't have quite the same reputation that he had at an earlier time and that's one reasons why i i wrote the book was to introduce modern readers to who he really is mm -hmm. well many people may know that he founded a, well actually he didn't found a church but a church was founded based on his uh, writings the church of the new jerusalem often referred to today as the swedenborgian church Yes, this is something he actually didn't want a church uh, in, in that way uh, to be made because he believed um, you didn't have to go into a bricks and mortar uh, or a congregation in order to, you know, uh, read the word. It was in the Bible and he developed this whole uh, esoteric way of reading the Bible. Um, but yes, after his death, because of his insights into um, the spiritual worlds and because of his teachings and because of this new vision of Christianity that um, he uh, brought, and which people like William Blake, um, who was probably uh, one of his most famous, uh, the, the great English poet William Blake, uh, was a devotee of. Uh, this whole church grew up um, sort of after him, um, but he didn't have anything directly to do with it, and in some ways it's sort of 
depending on which side of the Swedenborgian um, fence you are, it's uh, something that's kind of not quite exactly what he had in mind. I mean, there are other groups. There's a Swedenborg Society, uh, people that I know uh, here in London who are not affiliated with the church, but they carry on sort of a Swedenborgian tradition as well. Uh, but yes, there's a church, and you can find them. I mean, I, I guess in a way, um, some people might uh, see of them as just slightly slightly left or right of the Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, but there's a bit more to it than, than that. Mm -hmm. One of the intriguing things to me about Swedenborg uh, is that like Rudolf Steiner, his career as a mystic didn't really take off until he was, I think in Swedenborg's case, in his 50s. Uh, nevertheless, as, as you write about it, he showed uh, various mystical propensities even in childhood. Oh, this is true. Yeah. I mean, the way the usual story is that this is something that happened to him in sort of his uh, 50s, let's sort of say, or late 40s into 50s, kind of midlife crisis, which it was in many ways. Um, but earlier than that, um, yes, as, as a child, uh, he uh, had sort of visions, uh, same sort of thing that uh, William Blake uh, uh, talked about. And he also developed um, a strange um, practice of, of sort of holding his breath. This is something that he developed on his own, and uh, it uh, turned into a sort of meditation process in which he would be able to reduce his breath to, to the tiniest, you know, barest sort of uh, intakes and, and exhalations. And this produced in him, understandably, a sort of altered state of consciousness. And this was something that he would later investigate scientifically in his studies with anatomy and, and neurophysiology, and he would come to um, some conclusions about links between the lungs and, and the brain that were later validated by you know uh, modern modern neuroscience uh, and all this sort of thing um, but um, yes and he, he also talked about something that uh, came to him when he was young but also later on in life it was this kind of this sort of confirmatory light he called it was this kind of flame this kind of inner flame that he would see whenever he was sort of on the right kind of track of something and this was something that guided him in his scientific pursuits when he was meditating on something in the sense of trying to understand, um, you know, whatever problem he was working on. If in his sort of contemplation, this sort of flame appeared in his meditations, he felt that he was on, on the right track. So it, 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 there are many Swedenborgian, Swedenborgians, I would say, who want to keep this kind of occult Swedenborg off to the side. They want to say, no, this is a popularization. He wasn't really like that. But it isn't. I, I don't think you can really grasp what Swedenborg was about without having this. And this is something that was you know, there. And it was also, again, it's something that at the time um, was in many ways part of um, the learned persons, the learned man or woman's uh, uh, curriculum, uh, because what we consider the occult sciences or the hermetic sciences, um, they were something that uh, weren't quite, um, uh, you know, thrown out into the dustbin of ideas just yet. They weren't just, they weren't quite discredited. I mean, Swedenborg is kind of on the cusp of that happening. Mm -hmm. So as he's pursuing his scientific studies, he's also pursuing sort of Kabbalistic and hermetic studies. Uh, his brother-in-law, a fellow named uh, Eric uh, ben ben Benzelius, um, was a um, also a sort of enlightenment scientist, but he also uh, knew Helmuth von uh, Rodensroth, who had um, translated the Kabbalah and things of that sort. So, and Swedenborg went to live with him for a while because he was, wasn't getting on with his father because of this clash between the religion and the science. So, yeah, for us, it's something. These things that are they're very far apart. There's occult and hermetic science, and sort of you know natural science and that sort of thing. But for Swedenborg, there was something that were part of this this one pursuit of knowledge that that he went on. 
And I gather an important part of uh, a conventional education in those days would be to study uh, Plato and also the Neoplatonists. Yeah, I mean, this was something that was in the universities and and, and the whole Neoplatonic um we can sort of see as this emanationist kind of metaphysics that is sort of the standard um, Neoplatonic vision of the world where you have the absolute uh, and then sort of gradually descending from that in, in different layers of, of less um, unity and, and more fragmentation. You have this descent into our world. And this is sort of a backdrop. This was kind of um, kind of um, metaphysical background that Swedenborg's scientific studies were against. And he was trying to understand how, how does that transition take place? How do you get from this non-manifest spiritual reality that's behind everything to, you know, the real um, physical world that we're in? And again, this is something that people like René Descartes, he was trying to do the same thing. You know, Descartes um, famously was trying to find the seat of the soul. Mm-hmm. And he narrowed it down to the pineal gland um, in, in the brain. And funnily enough, it's more or less in the same position with the third eye of Hinduism is supposed to be. So there seems to be some some kind of suggestion that, you know, it's not just, um, you know, sort of superstition, something going on there. Uh, and um, Swedenborg uh, did the same thing. And he was trying to understand how this transition could take place. And then finally, he realized that he couldn't he wasn't able to explain it in terms of science and um that kind of realization happened at the same time when uh, he took a really deep plunge into these sort of spiritual worlds that he was he was studying for some time i think it's also useful to compare swedenborg to another one of his uh, contemporaries isaac newton who had a similar mix of scientific and what we would now call occult interests Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, um, Newton um, wrote more about alchemy than he did about gravity. And gravity itself was considered an, an occult force because it's unseen. I mean, occult just means un- unseen. It means sort of occluded. You know, you, it's, something's blocked. Something's in the way of you seeing it. Um, and um, so, I mean, nobody's ever seen gravity, uh, but it seems to work, or at least Newton's description of how it works seemed to, you know, take care of a lot of stuff for a lot of people for a long time until Einstein uh, uh, came around. So, But again, this is something that came out in the 1920s or later when um, the um, economist John Maynard Keynes bought a collection of Newton's papers that were just languishing you know, somewhere. And going through them, he realized there were just reams and reams and reams about alchemy and about sort of um, biblical history and trying to understand revelation and understand sort of, you know, predictions of future history based on the, the Bible. And um, I mean, it's not to say that Newton's work on gravity and everything else wasn't really important to him. It was, but it was one part of of a larger life that involved all these other things and similarly i mean you can find the same thing in some of the other people like kepler i mean kepler who you know preceded uh uh was um johannes kepler he too was a student of sort of hermeticism and astrology and that sort and but because of his interest precisely in plato the whole idea of the platonic solids being uh, the model for the orbits of the planets. He was trying to do that, and he realized it just didn't work, and that's how he really discovered the law of, of planetary motion. Um, but, yeah, it, it wasn't this kind of thing until later on, like 19th century, later on, you get the historians looking back, and they want to sort of make a nice picture of the rise of science and reason and rationality out of this superstition, when in actuality, the very people that they're, you know, the, sho- the shoulders... the, the the shoulders of the giants they're standing on themselves are well steeped in the thing they're trying to eradicate. So it's a strange kind of irony going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, psychologically, uh, it seems as if 
Swedenborg's relationship with his father was was rather paramount to the evolution of his uh, theology. Well, I mean, Swedenborg's father, depending on your account, um, he was, uh, you know, either, you know, a very, very, um, what do you want to say, sort of uh, individual who was completely um, obsessed with sort of living by the letter of the rule of, of, of religion and all that, and uh, would sort of unselfconsciously show himself as an exemplar of all this and would write these letters and these testimonies and the kind of thing and since because i am such a you know model example of christian piety and all these kinds of things the sort of things that when you read it, you have to think this person has absolutely no self-knowledge and i mean there are there are you know more caustic and and more generous accounts of of Jesper Swedborg, but he comes across as someone who is actually quite you know well pleased with himself, and this was something that where I think Swedenborg, how should we say it, um, he he never really made it a personal attack on his father. It was a model for how not to be, and it and if you're aware of Swedenborg's. Uh, sort of uh, vision of the spiritual worlds when you go into the next world after death you go somewhere where there's no pretense possible at all and you you can't you know what you see is what you get and as in the old um, you know cliche you can't say one thing and mean something else and um, I think Swedenborg became so attuned to a kind of unconscious hypocrisy in his father whereas like of course his father I'm sure he applied himself with great diligence to fulfilling all the, you know, the rules and all that, but he's only human and at times must, you know, I mean, the, his, the, his very protestations of his, of his, um, you know, uh, angelic goodness were, were enough to, you know, be insufferable. And so Swedenborg grew up with this kind of vision of, you know, people that are saying something and have, and, you know, what's the truth is something that's beyond them so he posited this other realm where that was impossible where you know, what you said uh, it was what you meant and you couldn't do otherwise and all that and this was sort of this um intermediary uh realm we go through after death before we're drawn by our true affections either to heaven or to hell mm-hmm. um and uh yeah this is sort of the, this whole uh, kind of geography of the spiritual worlds that uh, Swedenborg starts uh, mapping out in, in his later life. He went through a big transition, I gather, uh, from focusing primarily on his scientific and engineering activities, which seemed to be a passion for him. He even edited the very first scientific journal published in Sweden. And uh, his, his spiritual interests, and I gather there was a crisis that caused this transition. Well, there was there were a few things. I mean, one of the things was this actual sort of attempt to find the seed of the soul, this kind of scientific attempt to do, and he realized, given what he was working with, he wasn't able to do that. And also, I think he had a crisis of his own personality, because for a long time, he was like many men at that time, he wanted to make a name for himself, and he, he had a burning passion for fame. Um, and, um, you know, there, there were several scientific uh, contests that he entered in order to win and to, you know, to reap fortune and all that, and he didn't quite win them and all that. And he realized this was something that was um, in the way, getting in the way of his own development. And he started to uh, become very aware and self-critical of this of, of this uh, sort of ambition uh, and this self-assertion. And again, if you're aware of sort of Swedenborg's kind of theology or his psychology, the whole idea of the self, of this kind of clutching, grasping um, kind of self, um, is the opposite of of, of the true self. Uh, it's the ego, it's the I um, um, sort of thing, uh, always after its own aggrandizement and all that. So again, he, he, he sort of became revolts at himself for that. Um, and he had 
for a long time been studying a variety of different kind of practices. I talked about the Kabbalah. Um, again, this is something that a lot of Swedenborgians don't actually uh, like to be said about him. Uh, but there's a, 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 a wonderful American scholar named Marsha Keith Suchard, who's done remarkable work in, in uh, uncovering all this stuff about Swedenborg's life. And during this time, he made many, many visits to London, I and mean, he traveled quite a bit. He said that he edited the first scientific magazine uh, in, in um, Sweden. It was called uh, the, the Daedalus, I think was the name of the magazine. And he was sent by this group called the Guild of the Curious, which just sounds like a fantastic name for society, on these travels to go to go to um, England. He, he went to England. He went to uh, the Northlands, Amsterdam, places like that. Um, uh, much in the same way, just uh, uh, parenthetically, as Peter the Great from Russia had done a little bit earlier to learn about engineering and learn about because these were the places where this stuff was going on. And so, and he, he met Edmund Haley, uh, you know, uh, the, the, call it, the comet is named after, uh, and Flamsteed, the great British astronomer, and, and so on and so on. But he also got involved with sort of masonry going on in um, London uh, at the time, having to do with the sort of the, the, the Jacobite attempt to put a Stuart back on the throne. So it was this all kind of strange, esoteric kind of political um, machinations that he got involved in. Uh, and studying Kabbalah, there was this remarkable fellow named uh, Rabbi Chaim Falk, who um, is this really strange figure in the background of a lot of esoteric uh, sort of happenings around this time. But he had apparently had a kind of uh, occult shop in London's East End, uh, where Swedenborg lived for a while, but also a kind of um, school where he was teaching a variety of different sort of Kabbalistic uh, practices and meditations, a lot having to do with sex, having to come out of the rabbi um, uh Sabata, Zevi, uh, and also with Swedenborg, he got involved with this group of Moravians, um, who were a religious sect who um, had come out of um, sort of the Thirty Years' War and 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 the Russia uh, the Rosicrucian diaspora, uh, where they had come out of Bohemia and got involved with this Count Zinzendorf and who taught this kind of strange, weird kind of um, sexual erotic theology about Christ on the cross and how uh, through his wound, you know, through the wound where the, the spear had pierced his side, he had become hermaphroditic because he had both, you know, male and female uh, sexual genitals now. So Swedenborg was in with some really strange people at this time and practicing a variety of different kinds of things. And at one point, he apparently he sort of he sort of flipped. He went and he had a strange... Um, you, you talk about Steiner uh, and and Swedenborg, both of them coming into their own, late, you know, later in life, in the second half of life, and they both went through what the um, history, uh, historian of uh, uh, psychology, Henri Ellenberger, called a, a creative illness, where you you go through some basically a kind of nervous breakdown. Jung. Same thing happened to Jung uh, after his breakup with Freud, and when he went and descended into the unconscious and charted that journey in the Red Book and all that. Steiner went through something like that, and Swedenborg went through something like that. And there's all stories of him sort of raving uh, mad and, and lying in a ditch and taking his clothes off and things of that sort. And again, it's difficult to, you, you have to kind of sift through the reports, because there are people who want to give him a bad reputation, there's other people who are just kind of telling you what happened. And, and so, you know, you have to take a lot of these reports with, um, you know, a grain of salt. But in the end, what happens is that he has this visitation by Christ, uh, and um, this is this is sort of the turning point. And um, he's has a long sort of uh, 
visitation or meeting with angels and Christ talking to him and going through, you know, his whole, you know, kind of life before then. And basically Christ is telling him that, you know, um, if, if the real work for you is not this, it's not the science. You have to jettison all that. You have to give up all that. And, and you have to come and, and come and learn about the inner spiritual worlds. And this is where he makes his transition from the scientist to this sort of religious philosopher. I gather that he, uh, prior to this crisis, he seemed to exhibit a, almost a bipolar personality where there were times he would condemn himself as a terrible sinner and other times where he felt just a uh, heavenly exaltation, uh, uh, because of uh, intellectual ideas or because of a vision he might have had. Well, yeah, this is sort of the struggle going on between him. He, he, I said he was very, very critical. And I mean, one of the things that I myself found a little difficult to take is um, in, in his sort of mission or his, his message, his, his sort of theological message is the notion that anything good that we, any of us does doesn't come from us at all. It comes from the divine, comes from God. And uh, I mean, to put it simply, I, I don't want to in any way, you know, disparage uh, the divine's influence on my doing good. But at the same time, one would like to think that one was able to produce good on one own. But one can understand, again, he himself, he went through this kind of, um, how should we say it? Um, you have to put yourself back into the 18th century. And I think we today, for better or worse, have a bit more psychological acuity and maybe things that at an earlier time were much more sharp and sudden and and more abrupt uh but you know i i don't think at that time it wasn't that unusual for someone to like jasper swedenborg and let's say swedenborg in his own way perhaps not as loudly but he was proclaiming his own brilliance and his own genius and he and then to have a sudden shift from seeing that oh no that that's the that's the self that's selfish that's the ego and uh, i'm i'm not going to feel the love which is fundamentally what he's going to get to like god's love radiates throughout the universe in the same way that the sun's light radiates and it gives us light it gives us warmth and uh, in saying this i'm i'm getting brushing up on his his brushing against his whole idea of correspondences which will become his his fundamental idea is that you know there's so the way the world is for us the everyday world so too the spiritual world is like that so there's a there's a direct analogy between the world that we experience as the world and, and the spiritual world and it became his mission this is what jesus told him it was his job to do was to read the bible in this light and also you know to be able to read the world in this way, he was he was reading the world already in terms of science, uh, and in that way he was understanding God's handiwork. But this is another. This is like mm -hmm. the next step. You, you, he was dealing with appearances. Now it's like get to the causes, and that that was the shift that he wanted to make. And this was the argument he had against Newton and Descartes and that science. It was very good up to where it got you, but he wanted to get to the causes behind. And and this idea of the correspondence between the physical world and the spiritual world, uh, as you point out, seems to be uh, directly out of the hermetic axiom that probably most of our viewers have heard, as above, so below. Well, absolutely. Again, this is something that, you know, there's some purist Swedenborgian say, that was got nothing to do with that. It's just the vision that came to him. But uh, but obviously it is. It's it's, And I'm not saying he's only taken that. He's He's seeing it but he's he's expressing it in a new way he's he's communicating in a new way um he's aware of the hermetic teachings he's aware of neoplatonism but what his job is to read the bible and i'll tell you the first thing he does is he, he embarks on this enormous hermeneutic interpretation of the bible um in terms of this you know new vision of things uh something you know uh, well something that Henri corbin would do um 
I don't know, two centuries later or a century and a half later, and Henri Corbin, um, the, the great uh, Arabic and Persian, uh, a scholar of Arabic and Persian mysticism and, and who coined the term the imaginal, he, he, he wrote quite a bit about Swedenborg because he saw similar experiences where the mystics that he was studying in the Persian tradition and, and with Swedenborg's own journeys into the spiritual worlds. But they're doing the same kind of thing, this kind of reading of the world. And Swedenborg writes an enormous um, you know, tome. And he only gets through the first two books of the Bible and he realizes he can't, you know, he's never going to finish it if he, if he keeps on. So he just kind of stops there and, and there's some other bits and pieces that he goes into. But this is the, this is the main message. And um, we, we today, we find it, you know, absolutely unreadable. I mean, most of us, I mean, you really have to, you know, um, that's why I wrote my book. Um, but, you know, it's not the sort of thing that, you know, many of us are going to sit down and start to read. But the fundamental idea behind it is behind, again, it's, it is the hermetic idea of as, you know, as above, so below. But it, it, it became so important in sort of 19th century occultism and esotericism and even beyond and into uh, aesthetics. And um, I mean, I just recently wrote a little book, a, a long essay uh, for the Swedenborg uh, Society here about um, uh, Swedenborg's notion of correspondence and sort of focusing a good point on and its cultural influence and the whole 19th century movement of symbolism um, in which you get you know the poetry of Charles Baudelaire and you get the operas of Wagner and um, m many other uh, so the paintings of Gustav Moro and many other things like that came out of this whole notion, uh, this idea that, you know, things stand for something else, uh, you know, the kind of hard, um, rigid scientific world. The world isn't really like that. It's shifting. It's it's moving. Uh, it's changeable. And things are in this kind of interrelation. And again, it also goes back to, you know, the Neoplatonic idea of the anima mundi and the sympathy of all things. So Swedenborg's in that tradition. He's working in that tradition. He's not standing outside of it completely. But like everybody else in that tradition, like Steiner and others, Jung, they have their own take on it. And they kind of put these things together in a new way uh, for their for their audience. One of my windows, so to speak, into this crisis that Swedenborg went through comes from my studies of uh, Henry James Sr., the father of William James and Henry James, who was very influential among the American transcendentalists and did a lot to introduce Swedenborg's thinking into America. But Henry James had a, a, a terrible crisis of his own. He was in Europe and he felt one day that some horrible, dark, ugly figure was haunting him and he couldn't free himself from it. And he went into a, a deep depression and he came out of it, I understand, when he met a, a, a woman who was a Swedenborgian in, in England who told him that what he was having was known to Swedenborgians as a vast station and that by learning to uh, let go of uh, his sense of himself, his ego, his self-love, uh, that he would be able to uh, free himself from this horrible influence that uh, seemed to him at the moment to be uh, about to destroy his life. Yes, yes, that's, that's, a, that's a remarkable account. I, I first came across that in uh, Colin Wilson's book, The Outsider. He, 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 he gives uh, that account of uh, Henry James Sr. and says this sort of, this sort of hideous thing radiating out of the corner somewhere. And it's just this kind of sense of the anxiety of, of just your being. You're suddenly confronted with your own being. And uh, as in the existentialists and people like 
Sartre and Camus, they would later develop a whole philosophy based on this. Uh, but this is something, yes, the vastation suddenly, you know, um, and you know, William James, his son, his son, he experiences the same sort of thing. Um, he talks about when um, he was um, uh, practicing and there was a, um, a patient of his, this idiot um, you know, a patient who was out of his mind, and uh, I, I, I'm, I don't mean to say idiot in my own sense, you know, uh, value judgment. It's I'm quoting James the way he uh, he described him, and uh, someone who was just sort of sitting crunched up in a corner with his, you know, his knees drawn up to his chest and kind of rocking, and he says, you know, there but for the grace of God, basically goes I, the, you know, should should the moment call for me as it, you know, came for him, the same thing could happen to me. And it's the sudden sense of our fragility or vulnerability. You know, uh, it's, you know, uh, it's what, you know, Sartre would call kind of nausea uh, and this kind of, in, you know, this kind of contingency. And uh, Swedenborg himself passed through these kinds of states in his own spiritual kind of journeys and, and uh, his journeys into hell and things of that sort. And um, one of the things I, I, I should point out, and I, um, I, I do point out in the book is that Swedenborg took these journeys by being able to remain in this in-between state um, that we all go through when we fall asleep at night or when we wake up in the morning. It's co called the hypnagogic. Um, hypno is a Greek word for sleep. Gog is uh, is like a, uh, a guide. So the demagogue is the guide of the people, or, or, or such and such. And um, and so as we fall into sleep we sort of drift into this in-between state where we're both awake and asleep at the same time. You can kind of watch dreams uh, start to form. Most of us just slip into the dream state and lose all sense of our eye uh, as being detached from it. But Swedenborg was able to maintain that for a long time. And apparently for hours on end, it was in these strange half-dream states that he had these visitations and took these you know journeys to heaven and hell. Uh, and where, where, where I said he experienced these sorts of things like the vastation and all that. And it's remarkable, again, how we just don't know how important Swedenborg was to so many people. I mean, uh, he saved uh, August Strindberg, the the great Swedish playwright, who himself was went through a period of going mad in the 1890s uh, during the same time when he became a practicing alchemist when he was in Paris, and he went through these strange paranoid. Uh, episodes where he felt there were these theosophists were after him and they were <laughs> trying to get him because he had said some, I don't know, critical things about Madame Blavatsky. And what he found to help him at this time was was reading Swedenborg and reading his accounts of heaven and hell and all these kinds of things. And again, many, many people in sort of the real cultural world, like um, the composer Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, he was a great um, reader of, of Swedenborg, and he draws on some uh, Swedenborgian uh, ideas in, in uh, some of his compositions. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned Baudelaire, uh, Henri Bal you know, Honoré Balzac. I mean, I, I could reel off uh, a long number of people that were very um, influenced by his work, and it's something that just doesn't translate today. Um, there's there's a barrier between the 19th century and in our time, and it has a lot to do, I guess, with Swedenborg's you know focusing a great deal of his work about interpreting the Bible. I think one of the most fascinating episodes uh, has to do with uh, Swedenborg's impact on one of the greatest philosophers of that era and maybe of all time, Immanuel Kant. Oh yeah, well Kant, yeah he did. Well Kant tried to sort of prove that oh this can't be you know, sort of the case, these kinds of visions that he's having. Uh, and in fact, it was one of the few kind of current events that, you know, he, he would, um, you know, uh, pay attention to. He wasn't sort of known for commenting uh, too much on what was going on at the time. But word had come about all of these, you know, variety of kind of... It, the, the, 
it was sort of the reports of the, the heaven, you know, his visions to heaven, uh, his visits to heaven and hell, and also some reports of some of these psychic experiences he had. One of the there was the one about the Gothenburg fire, which is probably the most famous one, uh, 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 when um, uh, Swedenborg was in Gothenburg, and uh, which is a town out, uh, you know, a few hundred miles, whatever, away from Stockholm, and while there. Um, he had suddenly had a vision of a fire going on um, back home at Stockholm. And um, he was in a state of anxiety uh, for quite some time. And then uh, he sort of became okay and, and uh, was calm. And he, he said, oh, my, my, th- thankfully it stopped uh, uh, before it got to my house and that sort of thing. And back there, there was no, obviously no internet, no phone, nothing like that back then. So it took a bit of time for news uh, to reach town. When the news did reach where they were, it was exactly as he had said. And so that story had had got around and things of that sort. And um, Kant, um, who, you know, extremely rational character, wanted to sort of, what he wanted to disprove was that there was any kind of direct contact with these higher worlds. You know, for Kant, there was this world of causes, but we didn't have any direct contact with it. We couldn't as we were, we we can only postulate that it had to be there, but we could not have any kind of direct experience of it. And Swedenborg's accounts of going into the spiritual world was sort of contradicting that. But in the end, he kind of came around. Uh, I, I, I and I think this is something that happens to a, a lot of uh, the people where they, you know, sort of at first feel like, no, this can't be the case, and they go and and uh, you know try to uh, debunk it, and then they come away feeling that um no whatever it is this isn't just charlatanry this isn't just um something that's you know uh, a fake or a fraud uh, whatever this person's experience he's really experienced and this is what swedenborg says i've seen and heard mm-hmm. he, he talks about i've seen and heard and that's the whole the there's a he put a book together called heaven and hell but it was made up of all these little vignettes that he interspersed in these longer more dry, you know, uh, accounts of of the interpretation of the Bible and and you know in a variety of different ways and sort of it sort of to liven things up for the re- reader to give him you know a little bit of a break and he would sort of say oh as the angels were telling me or just the other day as I was walking in heaven and this is what I saw and he would give this very kind of dry factual account of what it was like it was kind of like a rough guide you know to the spiritual words but this is the sort of thing that people would read and somehow they would they would get the connection the analogy and you know the spiritual worlds are very much like this world they're almost the same thing except they're different and the way they're different does make makes all the difference i suppose it's fair to say that uh, uh, swedenborg's reputation had uh, spread throughout uh, certainly the upper classes, the educated classes in Europe, the, the fact that this episode that took place in Sweden uh, regarding the fire in Stockholm uh, came to the attention of Kant, who never left his hometown, I understand. No, I'm saying, yeah, yeah. In, in yeah, I'm saying it, was, it was the talk of the talk of the town. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, and for a long time, Swedenborg published his books anonymously, and he had them published abroad. And there were a couple of different reasons for that. But eventually, it came out that he was the author of uh, of these works, and I've only mentioned you know a, a few of them. But they're they're he wrote volumes. Uh, he wrote volumes about scientific things, about astronomy, you know, about the the nebula theory. So he's doing all kind of work like that. But then uh, he's also writing these huge, huge accounts of of the spiritual worlds, and this is getting around. Eventually, where it gets out that he's the author of these things, and um, he's you know being invited to the court of different you know royalty and, and such and such, and he actually goes to the queen, uh, queen of Sweden, and uh, she's um, 
you know, basically kind of, you know, kid him a bit. And, um, you know, she says something about, I, I hear that you visit, you know, um, the, um, you know, the spiritual worlds and things of that sort. And she says something, well, the next time you're there, will you, you know, say hello to my brother? I forget exactly who it is. It was something along those kinds of lines. And he said, I will, indeed. Yes, I does. And then the next time he goes, he says, well, I have spoken with your brother. And he, he asked me to remind you about this. And he told her something that only she and her brother would have known. Um, and, and actually, so, um, she was impressed. And there was another famous account in which, um, someone, had died and their widow was being um, sort of hounded by creditors to pay per, pay for something and she believed that it had already been paid for but she couldn't find you know the the receipt the invoice that kind of thing and they they kept you know going after and asking for the money and she asked Swedenborg could you please ask you to speak to my husband and he did and he said yes it's in it's in a secret drawer in that dresser and if you go there you'll find it and lo and behold it was there so I mean there's more stories but this kind of stuff just was getting around and um, it, it became sort of a celebrity but also it also raised some um, antagonism against him it raised some sort of um, hostility towards him and it actually you know people that were trying to have him uh, certified as insane and, and basically put away. The question of his sanity would seem pretty obvious uh, since he claimed to be engaged in regular discourse with angels and pl plus a wide variety of other spiritual entities. Uh, but you point out that throughout this same period, he kept up his uh, scientific activities. He continued to function as an assessor of the minds. Uh, he uh, was involved in parliament. He was engaged in all sorts of conventional day-to-day -day activities in which he showed uh, every uh, sign of competence. Well, I mean, again, I mean, if you want to see someone who's sanity, I would say Swedenborg would be a good example. I said, I mean, I said he accomplished so much. I mean, it's the sort of thing he, um, from our everyday point of view, he held very strange ideas, but um, he didn't act uh, in any way that would, you know, would have been considered insane. And this was something that, you know, worked well for him when the forces that were trying to have him locked up, you know, actually petitioned the authorities to do so. Um, and one of the people who whose writings about Swedenborg led me to become very interested in the fellow named Wilson Van Dusen, who was a um, psychiatrist in California. I knew and, him. Uh, oh, you know, oh, yes. Yeah, well, he was, yeah, he was back, I remember, 60s, 70s. Yeah. Um, uh, he wrote, um, well, he, he, wrote, he wrote a couple of wonderful books, one called The Natural Depth in Man, yeah. uh, which he draws on some of Swedenborg's ideas. And then he wrote another book called The Presence of Other Worlds, which is about Swedenborg. And he was reading that book, that I got interested in. One of the things he says is if you, if you read Swedenborg's diaries during all these periods, I mean, they're, they're lucidity itself. So there isn't the kind of raving, you know, there isn't the kind of, um, it's very, it's very, very different. And again, similarly with Rudolf Steiner. I mean, Steiner, um, you know, he talks about Atlantis and Lemuria and reading the Akashic record. And again, Steiner too, he was, he was another one who was very good at hypnagogia. He was another one who was able to stay in this in-between state. Again, Jung, Jung as well. This is something that's common, just as the creative illness is sort of common with these these people I found in, in uh, writing about them. Um, but again, Steiner makes you know absolutely outrageous uh, claims about things about the past and 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 so and so and the dead and all this sort of thing. But I mean, um, aside from that. Um, there's nothing you can say bad about him. Uh, the psychologist Anthony Storr in his book Feet of Clay 
when he was sort of critical of these gurus, he said, you know, in the end, there's no, I can't find anything bad to say about Steiner because he just was sort of this soul of goodness. So you have these people that they say things that just seem absolutely, you know, absurd, but um, in their life, they're of how, how uh, a good life could be led. Mm -hmm. Now, Wilson Van Dusen is an interesting character. He was the head psychologist at Napa State Hospital in California, a big warehouse where many psychotic people were kept in the uh, 1960s and uh, early 70s before Ronald Reagan opened up all of those facilities and <laughs> created a new category of homeless people. But what Wilson Van Dusen did that I thought was particularly fascinating in working with his psychotic patients, he tried to apply Swedenborg's ideas of spiritual entities, and he determined that there were good spirits and bad spirits who were communicating to these psychotic patients. They were being hounded by bad spirits, and yet each one of them had like a, a good spirit guide who was helping them to kind of navigate the difficult terrain they were in. And Van Dusen felt that uh, you could really look at psychosis this way, that th these are actual spiritual entities that are uh, infesting these people and uh, resulting in their psychotic condition. No, you're right. I mean, he has a, a very interesting paper called The Presence of Spirits in Madness, I think, and it yeah. makes up a chapter in, in one of the books. And yes, and this is one of the things that Swedenborg said. He said the, there are spirits that are around us all the time. Um, we, we don't notice them most of the time but you know certain you know inclinations or hunches or something you know suddenly whatever they're trying to infect uh affect our behavior all the time and that sort of thing and he said yeah there are good spirits and there are bad ones there are evil ones and there are angelic ones and um wilson van dusen as you say he, he took that and instead of when one of his patients started talking about voices instead of saying okay whatever voices again just saying okay well what, what were they saying and he started to apply Swedenborg's idea is that perhaps this is an intelligence of some kind communicating. And yes, and, and he was able actually to help people by getting them to look at it that way. I think there's a fellow named Adam Crabtree um, as a Canadian um, psychologist. I think he's taken up some of that as well in, in his work on multiple personality. Mm -hmm. And he, I think in his book, Multiple Man, he, he talks about that as well. Viewers uh, so, uh, will find about... Uh, Oh, I don't know, more than half a dozen interviews on the New Thinking Aloud channel with Adam Crabtree. Oh, all right. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, he, uh, he, 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 among other things, he wrote a brilliant history of hypnosis. Uh, yeah. I, I think Swedenborg turns up in there. This, this is a remarkable thing about Swedenborg's work is that it, it, it somehow has this kind of healing, calming um influence on people and and it's something to do i said with the rationality of it because yes he's talking about heaven and hell and he's talking about being taken to the other planets and meeting you know the inhabitants of jupiter or things of that sort and the spirit world and a variety of other strange sorts of things and but he's it's, again it's not raving it's it's laid out in this mm -hmm. kind of order that you know it's 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 dull you know <laughs> put it that way it's so soothing that it's often very dull you know because all he, he doesn't want to impress and he, he doesn't want to excite or he doesn't want to be sensational he just this is this is a true account this is as close and again this is sort of that enlightenment scientific element in him he he did write poetry at a certain point or earlier uh in his life and it, uh when he was a young man he thought he would make a career uh, as a great poet and things of that sort uh, i said there was a variety of different things he was trying to do in order to become famous um but in these 
writings where you you might think someone would sort of suddenly become you know a bit more uh strange and bizarre and all that he's not like that at all and they have this incredible effect of sort of soothing and calming people it strikes me that probably what swedenborg was experiencing when he talked about for example the inhabitants of the moon uh is uh the contents of his own psyche as he entered into the hypnagogic state uh these these various spiritual entities with whom he he was in communion uh were what we could call uh, aspects of the uh, jungian collective unconscious yeah i guess you could say i mean one of the things that um is well one one of the thing uh, well, when i started to study about hypnagogia one of the things i learned about it was that it, it was it's self-symbolic um there was a fellow named herbert uh, uh silberberg who was uh silberer who was a uh, uh, colleague of jung's and he was a follower on freud at the same time and he wrote about the hypnagogic state and he actually wrote about alchemy uh, earlier than jung did and jung actually borrowed quite a bit from silberer um but what he said is the hypno- in the hypnagogic state, these hallucinations, or, or it could be auditory, you hear voices saying things to you. Um, they sound like gibberish or they're strange sort of, you know, fantastic visions, but they're actually self-symbolic in the sense that they represent either um, your physical state, your emotional or your mental state at the time that you're drifting off. And Silber gave quite a few examples of this. And I think from that, if, if, if I mean, he's talking about drifting in and out of sleep and being able to maintain it, you know, for whatever few seconds or something minute be able to recognize an image or two we're talking about swedenborg going on a long eight hour journey or however long it took to get to heaven and back and all that and these self-symbolic kind of images could easily turn into these sorts of stories and i guess that's one of the things it's like well we have to learn how to sift between sort of the dream state because there is a kind of creator a dream artist inside us who takes the material and likes to weave it into sort of, you know, likely stories and all that. And then there's, you know, whatever real cognitive value that is coming through in the symbols. And I think that's something that we have to apply to Swedenborg and Steiner and Jung and uh, others who, who experiment with these, with, these, with these sort of states. And yes, you're right. You could, you could look at them as, you know, sort of um, expressions or, you know, uh, some of the scenery of the collective unconscious but what's that you know that, that that's something that goes yeah i agree with you but what is that, that that's something goes off into some big sort of yeah. areas out there as well and and what swedenborg says is that the inner the spiritual worlds are our inner worlds you know we, we get to the heaven and hell i mean it sounds like a cliche heaven and hell are inside us this is something we accept you know Mm-hmm. Like, you know, now we don't even bother even arguing that anymore. But this was something at the time that he was saying it was remarkably new and incredible. Uh, but also, you know, uh, in the sense that the spiritual worlds are interior, we get to them through the interior. I mean, again, you're back in the, you're still back in a time when some people did think heaven was somewhere up there and hell was somewhere down there. And Swedenborg's basically saying we reach these heavenly celestial spheres by going deeper inside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first step is becoming aware of your immediacy yourself you know we, we we don't even think about ourselves we again this is spiritual esoteric whatever philosophy 101 you know our consciousness is completely focused on the outside all the time it's glued to it most of the time and only rarely do we ever sort of turn around inwardly and you know and then in there we get lost in a variety of different kinds of things and so that's he, he developed a whole way of doing that it's one of the things wilson van dusen i, I thought mapped out in a in a nice you know sort of way to follow in his books on swedenborg uh, so you can see where he took the journey deeper and deeper you know sort of and he, he he kept an incredible dream journey to swedenborg and uh and again there was nothing 
you know, he didn't expurgate uh, anything from it. Later on, when I think it was first published, or some of the editors did, because they're these straightforward erotic dreams or sexual dreams. And again, Swedenborg was straightforwardly very sexual. He enjoyed sex. I mean, um, he, he gave it up after his sort of vision, but before then... Um, he was he was a man about town. He had mistresses. He never married. One of the last books he wrote called on on conjugal love. I mean, when he was eighty, he's writing about sex relationships in heaven, where you you get the you, you find the partner you should have had um, in life. And apparently, angels have you know sex, if not nonstop, very frequently and uh, mutually satisfying. And he's writing about this. And again, it's not you know you might think oh he's eighty years old you know he's <laughs> give him a break, but no, it's it's not in that kind of way. It's 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 very. Again, it's just kind of this is how it is, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of thing, and and, and again, it's this full-bodied kind of spirituality. Um, that, that again, when you say his 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 visions of heaven and hell, they're very they're very concrete. You yeah. know, angels live in houses, they live in cities, um, they go to work, they do certain things, um, but. On another end, space and time are very different. You know, people are close to each other not through space, but through their true affections. Through, through what they really truly love um, and time time isn't the way it is there isn't this kind of linear time Every, everything takes place um, in this eternal now and uh, di- different you know different places in heaven are reached by different changes of state so different in- interior kinds of states so he's mapping out all these stories about heaven and hell we're mapping this interior you know uh, world of our of our consciousness which for him carries on out into you know well this broader spiritual world Mm -hmm. which is very much along the lines of what pretty much everybody else is trying to say too i would say you point out that uh, in his journals uh, he was very very precise uh, in describing uh, different states of consciousness that he entered into and he mapped out a a number of unique different states almost uh, really like a a modern uh, psychologist might endeavor to do today, looking at altered states of consciousness. Oh, absolutely. He was doing a kind of phenomenology of mm. consciousness, let's say, before that word was even coined. Uh, and I say, he'll, 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 he talks about just sort of our immediate, just immediate consciousness, then a kind of self-reflection when you start to sort of be aware of your own consciousness, hypnagogic state, then different dream states. And then he talks about this, the, the, ble- the most blessed state is this one when you're coming out of sleep in the morning mm-hmm. and it said there's a kind of uh, there's this sort of bliss there that's unlike anything else and uh, yeah the few times i felt that I, I know i know what he's talking about uh so again this is the sort of thing if he was just a raving lunatic you wouldn't have this kind of meticulous step-by-step you know acute differentiation between different sort of phases of consciousness and all that no he was he was this cartographer of the inner worlds i mean and really and he was mapping it out in this kind of way and um i mean there's still a lot there i mean i in my book i just barely introduce yeah. uh, his work and give people a reason to go and 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 discover it i mean that was the original title of the book it was called discovering swedenborg and and uh um, but um I, I, you know, if anything, I think that's the thing. There's, there's so much out there uh, to try to learn, and if you just get your hands on his dream diaries, I think that's that, that's enough to start with, because he anticipates Freud and Jung and so many other people. Um, and again, so many people have been influenced by him. I mean, mm-hmm. Goethe was a great, great reader uh, of, of Swedenborg, um, and it's just, you know, um, so much of. I mean, he was even involved in politics in the early 19th century. The uh, sort of revolutionaries in in France. Um, we're looking to, for messages 
you know, from they they were <laughs> revolutionaries in France combining Mesmer's work with Swedenborg's were you know putting these oh. uh, sort of women into trances to get messages from the spirit worlds on how to you know carry on with the revolution. So I mean, he's <laughs> somebody who's like really much a part of the whole whole history. Yeah, he had a vast influence. We've talked about Emerson and Blake and uh, Goethe, <laughs> William James. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. Very important person uh, in in the history of esoteric culture. Uh, well, Gary, it's been once again a great pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you. Uh, thanks so much. Well, my pleasure, Jeffrey. And um, yes, I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, and so do I. I we have a, a great deal more to talk about before we're done. <laughs> 